Happy Hour, a podcast in which I, Tina, a real live opera singer, tells me, Amanda, who more often than not gets fully dressed, looks down and realizes she's wearing 100% gray stuff about the plot of an opera, and we ruin it for everyone. Each week, Amanda has no clue what opera we're going to talk about, but I do know who the composer is, and Tina, 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 that's me, ever so graciously giving me a whole whopping 60 seconds to tell you all about him. This week, our composer was supposed to be Scott Joplin, but we've decided to save that one for next week so we can have a special guest join us. So this week, we are instead going to talk about Benini. Amanda, you've got one minute on the clock. Ready, set, go. Vincenzo Bellini was born on November 3rd, 1801. Historians disagree. Was he a prodigy? Was he well-educated? Was he just a regular old kid with a piano teacher? We'll never know. What we do know is that by the age of 17, he had composed several orchestral pieces and wrote his way out of his hometown by petitioning the city government for a four-year scholarship to study in Naples with all the other musically gifted boys. During his years at school, he met Francesco Florimo and began a lifetime correspondence, and the letters from which are what we base most of our knowledge of Bellini's life on. Bellini became a tutor and got major heart eyes for his student, Madalena Fumarolis, but her parents were like, shut it down. He started composing opera and on his second attempt he had a hit on his hands so much so that the king applauded which was weird. Bellini re-upped his proposal to Madalena's father who said my dad will never marry a poor piano player. Later after Bellini had had success with another opera her father wrote back all oh I guess now you can marry her will you please marry her but unfortunately due to you know needing to move on Bellini's feelings had changed and he declined the offer. Before Bellini left Italy for Paris he began a five-year affair with a young married woman. It was a pretty sweet no strings attached deal for Bellini and he bailed when her husband found out and left her and she wanted to shack up. Four operas made a huge impact on the musical Dystopian of complicated chronic amoebic dysentery. What is this thing where the alarm goes off and you keep going? <laughs> I, just, I just can't. I'm sorry. I just, I had two sentences left, Tina, and it didn't seem fair. With the last words you said, chronic amoebic dysentery? Yeah. Tell me more last. about that, please. Uh, yeah, I had to look that up. Uh, so apparently one can have chronic dysentery dysentery of course being a uh illness that is brought on by parasites usually from like bad food or water um but apparently you can have like chronic problems with it like i would assume that maybe you just never quite get rid of the parasite and it flares up every once in a while and then you can have complications like colitis and like just like major like every now and again just have a bout of diarrhea or like a fever that you die from (laughs) so like i'm sure it's not as severe now as it was in yeah because like penicillin (laughs) penicillin but you know but yeah he died actually younger than mozart did mozart was 35 was bellini 34 i believe he was 34 okay Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's why when i made that line drawing of him he looked like a super young dude is because he was a super young young dude he never had an opportunity to be otherwise so this week we're going to talk about bellini's norma 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 i don't know why i know why it's because it sounds exactly like really similar but every time i hear norma i think of normal from the garfield comics (laughs) because i am an older millennial 
you know, just put that character onto Norma. Hmm. And I'm just kidding. It has nothing. I was going to say. I'm... There are no parallels to draw here. Really? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really relieved. I'm not going to lie. I don't think that would have made for good opera. Norma is actually a tragedia lyrica. A lyric tragedy. Lyric tragedy. What's the difference between a lyric tragedy and a tragedy? Just that there's music? It's, yeah, lyrical. <laughs> <laughs> Let's make up a new word. <laughs> smash two of the things together and put them in the same word we're gonna make a new word the people will love it we'll put it in the dictionary so norma is by bellini with a libretto by felice romani and it is based on a play called norma or the infanticide by alexandre Soumet. oh my oh. god your face when i said that oh god <laughs> okay and it premiered at la scala in 1831 and this opera is considered one of the greatest examples of the bel canto style and is probably the only Bellini opera I would willingly choose to listen to more than twice. Hmm. Can you remind me real quick, like in a sentence, because I don't want to belabor it, and I'm sure that I'm, a bunch of people listening already are like, oh my god, Amanda, again, seriously, but what the fuck is bel canto? I can't tell you what bel canto is in a sentence oh my god um <laughs> so bel canto is this term that was applied in hindsight to operas that were composed around like the 1810s to 1830s or so nobody really called it that until the 1860s but anyway it means beautiful singing like literally translated it means beautiful singing and it is where the focus of opera shifts to a very well controlled beautiful singing that is like one even tone throughout all of the registers there's a focus on legato phrasing lots of mesa di voce which is a form of dynamics it's just saying like you're using dynamic ranges and extended passages and if you're thinking but doesn't all singing have these things yeah, yeah. i'm kind of like yeah, it what does. the fuck was opera before this <laughs> <laughs> this is just where it becomes the major focus of singing technique does that make sense okay. i mean it I, does but i'm still not totally sure how it differs from the operas that came before it but that's okay it's oh my gosh i wish i could sum up bel canto in this if podcast anybody can sum up bel canto will you please fucking email me at operaplothappyhour at gmail.com no but okay people can sum up bel canto but they can't do it in a succinct way so if you're at if you're looking for bel canto in like three to five sentences you're not gonna get it well i mean like in an email i can handle give me a few paragraphs i don't care i just want to understand it i'm sorry that i didn't explain it better <laughs> it's not your fault it's not your fault it's not your fault my brain is probably just at capacity for today um i guess i can just say that in this period the focus becomes on like really good legato lines and an even tone throughout and um like after this it kind of falls out of style because we move into like the verismo period and we get like verdi puccini wagner which is all about singing the drama and not singing the beauty and then in the 1950s, we have this huge shift back to these bel canto operas. So there's like this bel canto revival. Could you argue that bel canto potentially could also be interpreted as a focus on healthy singing? Mm -hmm. Yep. So bel canto is, is multiple things. It is like the style in which these composers composed that focused on a vocal technique that is bel canto and most voice teachers like i would say like the the history of vocal pedagogy as we know it today originates in the bel canto style does that 
help yeah. at all? Yeah, I feel like, yeah, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. I feel like this might be the third time we've talked about this, and maybe by the 10th I'll have a thorough understanding. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? And maybe I will understand it enough to explain it simply. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they say. If you can teach something, that means you know it really well, so apparently i don't know bel canto <laughs> says rossini girl this was not meant to uh make you look bad <laughs> let me talk about things that i actually took notes on tonight uh so bellini is famous for writing extremely long lines which sound really simple when you hear them but they are so damn hard to sing like honestly the best way to sing bellini is in the park and bark style because it is so freaking hard to get through those really long sustained uh, lines wah, and they're often staged in the park and bark style because you cannot ask a lot of people to do a lot of movement while trying to sing this stuff well, that makes me very sad i know and it's in my opinion is probably where like the opera park and bark comes from oh really bel canto so? oh yeah oh yeah that sucks, man. I mean, I guess I get it because in the operas that I've staged, the pushback I get from my my singer actors is, you want me to do what while I'm singing? Mm -hmm. I can't sing that and do that at the same time. To which I say, yes, you can. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> you may have to compromise just a smidge, but you will do it. You yeah. can do it because otherwise, why are we not just recording an album or doing a recital? But I digress. Um, but yeah, yeah. it's troubling to me. <laughs> you know, I can I can actually through pants rolls tell you a little bit more about Belcanto. Um, so if you look at like the Baroque style of singing, of course our pants rolls from Baroque come from the castrati, which you know you can't castrate people for the sake of having higher voices anymore. So we mezzos sing it. <sighs> What's the world coming to? <laughs> you I can't know. even castrate little kids to keep their voices nice and high. So all of those roles that I would sing, <laughs> oh my god, they they like they're like the heroic characters. They're like the knights with swords, and you know they're they're very jaunty men. And then getting into like Mozart, like there's Carabino who's like running around and jumping out windows and hiding under beds and stuff like that. And then you get to the bel canto era, and I think like um oh what's his face and Anna Bolena and his aria is all about like I have this portrait of Anna Bolena and I'm in love with it and it's just him standing in a hallway singing okay you can kind of it's it's a lot less physical and a lot more about the music mm, okay okay all right yeah that being said the title role of Norma in this opera is one of the most difficult to sing roles in the repertoire because it requires incredible vocal control in range, flexibility, and dynamics while covering a really wide range of emotions from conflict of personal life versus public life, romantic life, maternal life, friendship, jealousy, murderous intent. Like there's there's so she's such a complex character and you have to sing through your entire range with lots of flexibility and dynamic control. It's hard. It's hard. Oh, man, this sounds like it would be such a challenge to stage and be a part of. I, I feel like at the end of this, just based, based on what you just said, I feel like at the end of this, I'm going to be extremely compelled by the story and I'm going to want to stage it. But with mm -hmm. the full knowledge that like it might suck because I might not be able to do the things I want to do with it. I I actually don't think so. I think that this is probably Bellini's best opera. 
Okay. Like I said earlier, it is the only one that I would willingly choose to listen to more than twice. And it's because you get all of these, these long lines and these sustained arias and everything, but they serve the drama really, really well. And even though it's, it's very prolonged, it never feels stagnant to me. Um, and just like little callbacks to previous musical themes really keep the drama moving forward. And I don't know, it's, it's the most interesting Bellini opera, in my opinion. Cool. So, um, I was going to say, though, about, about Norma being a really hard sing, the famous German soprano Lily Lehmann said that she would rather sing all three Brunhilde roles in Wagner's Ring Cycle in a single evening, and that would be less stressful than singing a single Norma. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> Them's fighting words. Holy shit. Okay. Well, that's that's uh that's an assessment. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I mean, she sang all the things, so she would know. And the ring cycle is like what 16 hours? Well, I mean, so Brunhilde is only in the last three. So but you cut the first one out and you have maybe like 13 hours of opera. She's only in the last three hours, or she's only in the last the last three of the ring cycle. How many? I thought the ring cycle was just three. There are four. Oh. Saying she's only in the last three when there are only four is kind of like. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> That's still 75%, Tina. More than because the first one's the shortest. But I'm not we a digress. smart man. <laughs> but I do know that three out of four is 75%. Is that a reference to something that I didn't understand? Fuck yes, it's a reference to Forrest Gump. Oh man, it's been way too long. Like, Jenny, I know I'm not a smart man, but I know what love is. God, that's a good movie. God, that's a good movie. I'm going to go watch Forrest Gump after this. Let me just jump into the plot. <laughs> <laughs> so. The setting is in Gaul around 50 BC when it is under the occupation of Rome. Gaul as in like what later becomes France? Yes. Okay, cool. Yes. Our characters are Norma, the high priestess of the Druids. Mm -hmm. She is the daughter of Oroveso. Love Druids. I'm excited. (laughs) Oroveso is the chief of the Druids. Okay. Adalgisa, who is a young virgin priestess of the temple. Analgesa. Adalgesa. No, that's not what I heard. Don't yeah, don't go anal with this. We have we barely started no, this podcast. Like analgesic, like a topical analgesic for when you're you know, like <laughs> like when you have ouchies. I totally thought you were thinking anal. <laughs> no. <laughs> but I see that I've developed a reputation with you. <laughs> I can't say I'm su- surprised. Oh so. my god. <laughs> Well, our next character is Clotilda. She is Norma's, like, maid attendant, but also her friend and the keeper of her biggest secret. And I guess I don't get to know what that is I yet. thought okay, that I good. would pepper that in there to tempt you. <laughs> um, and then we have Polione, who's a Roman consul. Okay. And Flavio, who is Polione's companion slash attendant. And then slash best have... friend slash keeper of his darkest secret. Yes. <laughs> Actually. <laughs> And then we have uh, a chorus of druids. <laughs> and we open with that chorus of druids. Oh my god, I'm so psyched. 
Oroveso is leading the druids in a procession in the forest to pray for victory against the invading Romans. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the druids pray that their high priestess Norma will aid them and have the courage to broker peace with the Romans. And then they exit to go to the temple and pray. So, wait, are they trying to defeat the Romans or are they trying to get a truce going with the Romans? They just want the Romans to go away mm. and they're peaceful druids. Like, Fair. if war doesn't have to be the way, then let's yeah. not let war be the way, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Can't, uh, can't say I disagree with that logic. So when they head into the temple, Polione and Flavio enter the clearing and Polione confesses his dilemma to Flavio. Because he used to be in love with Norma, who broke her vows of chastity to be with him, not to <gasps> mention she's betrayed her people by sleeping with the enemy. Slut. And she's born two children to him. Oh my god! This is so scandalous, and I'm uh -huh. stoked about it. <laughs> but now, however, he has met Adalgisa, and he wants to trade Norma <laughs> in for the younger model. I just can't hear analgesic. I can't not hear it. Adalgisa. Adalgesus. Okay. <laughs> and he wants to trade Norma in for the younger model. Yeah. Gross. Okay. But then he expresses a little bit of remorse and he describes this dream he had in which Adalgisa was beside him at the altar of Venus and this huge storm arose and it spells disaster for both of them. And... <laughs> basically he comes to the conclusion thus does norma punish her faithless lover so i i guess it's not really remorse it's more like uh oh am i making a bad decision is norma gonna get me yeah i feel like it's the classic it doesn't you, you're not sorry you cheated you're sorry you got caught cheating yeah, yeah. <laughs> well he's not caught yet well, he's confessing he, it to flavio yeah. right now <laughs> So then the two of them hear trumpets sounding to announce Norma's arrival at the tempo. And, uh, at the tempo? Te temple. Apparently I need to, <laughs> need to pronounce my words better. You should I have should, some more wine, Tina. I should pull out my English diction skills. I only paid thousands of dollars for that degree. <laughs> um <laughs> So as Norma leads the Druids and the priestesses, it's pretty obvious that they really respect her immensely. They all mm -hmm. bow down to her. They talk about how beautiful she is and how, how like righteous she is. And they just, we, they love Norma. We get it. And they all <laughs> kneel as she approaches. And Norma declares that they should not move to attack the Romans, stating that Rome will someday perish by being worn down by its own weakness <laughs> which you know more or less yep. comes true um <laughs> yep. and then with some mistletoe in hand she approaches the altar and sings this song to the moon which is her famous casta diva aria mm. yeah i was gonna guess it was gonna be like rocking around the christmas tree or... was it the mistletoe that did yeah. that for you yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um by the way, this is probably one of the most famous soprano arias in the repertoire. And if you're going to listen to it, you need to listen to the 1974 version um, from the, the theater in, in Orange. And it's Montserrat Caballé singing the title role. And this is, it, it was a performance that took place outdoors at night. And as Norma walks on stage, the breeze suddenly picks up. 
And you would think, you would think like, oh shit, like wind and it's going to blow the orchestra music everywhere or whatever. Like it's going to be a disaster. But actually the wind starts blowing all the robes and the veils of the priestesses. And it's just like this magical moment. And Norma is just standing statuesquely in the middle of all of it. Uh. And she delivers the aria perfectly it's so fucking chills. good that's amazing <laughs> so i'm shit. so gonna post a link to that because nice. that is the only version of that aria you ever need <laughs> <laughs> um okay so continuing she pleads to the goddess to shed peace upon earth that she has created in heaven again and this sounds like christmas but go on she calls for all to complete their rites and then clear the grove and then when she has a moment to herself, she talks about how she can't tell her people to raise arms and, you know, attack the Romans because that would hurt Polione. But she desires that things return to the way they used to be, like they want their peaceful temple back. So she's really torn between like, I love this guy, but we can't get rid of him. <laughs> and I don't want to hurt him in the process. Yeah. But also, they're going to attack us. So like, what can I do? I have questions. My questions are about their relationship and the nature of their relationship. Like, how did they meet? How did they get together? Does anybody know that they're together in the Druid camp? Obviously not in the Romans, except for the the guy, Flavio. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, is he providing any support for these two children? I can't imagine that anything is needed because they're Druids and they just live in the forest what exactly like she loves him okay but why like what does she see in him like he's not doing anything for her he's not a father figure to their children he's not paying alimony he's literally just invading her lands and attacking her people so like why are we why are we trying to protect if you live near a handsome man all the time which I can speak from experience. Aww. I am super attracted to my husband. Aww. I mean, me too, but that's very Shit's going to happen. <laughs> what do you mean shit's going to happen? If you are mutually attracted to each okay, other. If you're mutually attracted to each other, you're going to bone, fine, whatever. But if said boner is repeatedly and relentlessly trying to take over every room of the house and I don't know, take all your food away from you and label it John's food. <laughs> like, not like, like, like my is... real life because I'm married to a Russian man bear. But well, okay, I guess, go on. Well, I guess that this question is for you then, Tina. <laughs> what do you see in him? He's taking all your shit. <laughs> um, this is getting really personal. I'm going to move on. <laughs> Basically, all the Druids and priestesses are like, you know what? Norma is taking a cautious approach and we're going to respect that. And everybody goes about their lives. So later that night, Adalgisa is praying alone at the temple and she recalls how she became involved with Polione and she's praying for the strength to resist him. And then guess who enters? (laughs) Polione. Yes. And he's like, you pray to a cruel god because it's not the god that allows our love to be a thing. And she tries to reject him. And he says, like, I have to leave and go back to Rome tomorrow and, like, report everything that's been happening. Like, you could come with me. And she tries to resist him again. But finally, she agrees that they're going to leave together the following day. 
I forgot. Is she the handmaiden or is she a different person? She's like the handmaiden. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Okay. Yeah. <sighs> the Bitch. young, the younger model. Mm-hmm. Virgin priestess. Mm-hmm. This guy's got a thing for virgins. Yeah. So in the next scene, Norma is upset over her predicament. And she tells her maid Clotilda to take her children away, expressing very ambivalent feelings towards them. And she tells Clotilda that Polione has been recalled back to Rome and she doesn't know if he's going to take her with him or if he would feel any remorse about leaving his children behind if he chooses to leave without them. She's just in a funk. This is not an example of a healthy relationship. In case anybody is wondering, this is very, very unhealthy. Proceed. So Adalgisa comes to the door. And Clotilda takes the children and rushes them away because nobody knows that Norma has kids. Nope. They don't even know she has them, nope. let alone, oh my goodness, these nope. poor children. She is a virgin high priestess of the how on temple. Earth, how on earth in a tribal community mm-hmm. do you hide the fact that you have children from Thank the majority? You. Wow. Those poor kids must have just been like literally in hiding. They are very young. Have you ever tried to sequester a toddler? <laughs> <laughs> do you know what you would have to do to keep a toddler quiet and hidden away for more than i don't know two minutes yeah i don't i don't know i mean she's got clotilda and apparently clotilda has like an invisibility slash silencing hmm. cloak she's just got away with children i guess i guess it's called chloroform was that too much I did tell you that the title of this opera is Norma or the Infanticide. So like. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's definitely on my mind. (laughs) I'm not going to kill them, though. I'm just going to make them go to sleep for a long time (laughs) to be quiet. I'm so glad you're not my mom. Um, (laughs) (laughs) This is not an accurate representation of how I parent. No. Why? (laughs) FYI, not an accurate representation. Good Lord. So. The way that I've always made sense of this in my brain is that these kids are twins because hiding one and then choosing to have another and hide that one as yeah, well. That's crazy. And they have to be really young at this mm-hmm. point, just like the way that the kids are depicted in this opera. So I just assume that they're twins. I mean, yeah, sure. I'll get yeah. that. Yeah, I can get on board with that. <laughs> cool. So Adalgisa comes to the door and she's come to confess to Norma, whom she looks up to immensely, that she has broken her vows by falling for a Roman. Oh, no. Wait, wait. Adalgisa doesn't know? Nobody knows except Clotilda. And so, but Norma doesn't know that Polione and Adalgisa are a thing either. So he he is like a bona fide dick. He's an asshole. Oh, yeah. Got it. Okay. All right. Cool. So as... Adalgisa is describing how she fell in love while waiting at the temple and then seeing this handsome face appear. Norma starts recalling her own feelings for Polione and and how their situations seem to be running parallel to each other. How long is that song? How long does the audience sit there squirming for that song? (laughs) I want to know. Long time. Of course. Of course. Go on. They both have to express their separate feelings simultaneously. Multiple times. Differently each time for 
emphasis. With lots of mesa di voce. <laughs> um, so Adeljiza pleads to Norma for help and forgiveness. And Norma says, I will do what I can to release you from your vows as a priestess so you can go and be in love with this guy. Because, like, she feels for her, like, yeah. I never got to do that. Like, yeah. I've had to keep my love in secret. I'm not going to let that happen to Aww. you. She's going to get so fucked. Oh, yeah. Norma. So then uh, Norma asks Adaljiza to describe the man whom she loves. Oh, God. And at that moment, who should enter but Polione? And Adaljiza's like, this is the guy. Oh, God. <laughs> and Norma's pissed. <laughs> oh, man. That's unfortunate. Yeah, I'm just going to sit here and let you react to this for a little bit. I mean, I uh, one of the things I work on in therapy is <laughs> not... Uh, not owning other people's emotions and not being made so uncomfortable by other people's discomfort or anger or whatever that it makes like it, it drives me to become very upset. Mm -hmm. And I've come a long way, Tina, but that's just a lot. Oh my God. I'm just like bracing myself for whatever <laughs> happens next because you've already told me what's going to happen and it's just going to build to that. And I'm just, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I have like two more paragraphs and then you can get some more wine. Yep. Okay. Yeah, I need some. Right. okay. So Norma confesses to Adeljiza that she broke her own vows for this asshole and they've both been victims of his Please deception. tell me that they band together. Please tell me that they both dump his ass. There follows a few angry exchanges among the three of them. Norma mm -hmm. declaring that Polione is a traitor, Polione trying to persuade Adalgisa to leave for Rome with him, and Adalgisa angrily telling him to get the fuck out of here. Fuck, yes, yes, yes. Okay, good. And I'm then he declares that it's his fate to leave Norma, and Norma actually encourages Adalgisa to go with him. <gasps> Why? What? But Adalgisa declares that she would rather die than betray Norma. So... In the words of Leslie Nope, uteruses before deuteruses. <laughs> Am I right? <laughs> I totally forgot about that. That's amazing. I've been sitting on that one all day. <laughs> uteruses before deuteruses. I do enjoy that quite a lot. Yep. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let's be honest. The best love duets in this opera are between Norma and Adalgisa. Oh, that's nice. Mm -hmm. That's real nice. So then Norma demands that Polione go back to Rome, leaving his children and his honor behind. And then they all sing about their feelings for a while, Polione about his love for Adalgisa, Adalgisa about her love and devotion to Norma and how she doesn't want to be the cause of her pain. And then suddenly we hear the sound of the Druids calling Norma to the temple. They've had a report from their angry gods and she needs to listen to it. And then Polione storms out. And that's the end of Act One. It's like a memo. <laughs> <laughs> You've got mail. <laughs> oh, that's too dated, too. Jesus. How do people get reports? <laughs> Via text message? By somebody's Slack we just channel. Gotta, we just got a text from the gods. They're angry. I just don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> I especially I'm, I'm puzzled by this mostly because she's the high priestess so you mm -hmm. would think and maybe this is just like my catholic upbringing talking I just assume that the priest or priestess is the intercessor to the god or gods perhaps not but I just would assume that if if anybody's going to be kept abreast of any 
memos, any divine memos coming down that she would she would maybe be the first to know. Well, I mean, her father is like the chief of the druids, right? Yeah, but chief is like, so you've got your priest, but then over here you've got your like uh, archdiocesan president. <laughs> like... <laughs> Like the admin <laughs> side of the church. Okay. Okay. I just I don't just, feel like they're the same thing. <laughs> she just wasn't around in the temple to get the message. So people are calling to her. It's like a fax. <laughs> just comes yeah. through and somebody else grabs it like, oh my God, we got to tell Norma. <laughs> she put a vacation responder on her email before she left. <laughs> her internet connection was bad during the Zoom meeting. So everybody else heard the announcement and she was like, could you guys repeat that, please? I'm so sorry. <laughs> Also, she's a little too busy being betrayed by the father of her children. Yeah, fuck. <laughs> her phone, her phone's just going bing, bing, bing over and over in her pocket. And she's like, God damn it, Polione. <laughs> this is more important right now. <laughs> and then she decides to check her messages and he's like, fuck this, I'm out of here. I can't it's reason like with this woman. 27 missed calls. <laughs> Glued to her phone, can't even have a reasonable conversation. <laughs> Oh, man. <laughs> that was fun. Thank you for that. <laughs> that really, really helped me forget that we're building towards infanticide. <laughs> yeah, with that, uh, refill your wine glass. Yes. All right. You got your wine. I'm ready. You ready? I'm ready. Act two. Act two. Norma is looking upon both of her sons who are asleep. Oh, gosh. And she's considering killing them. And she advances toward them with a knife. And then she hesitates a little bit. And then she tells herself they're sleeping, so they won't see the hand that strikes them and know that their mother is the one who killed them. Oh, my God. Why? There's not... Is it just because... Polione can't have them. So he He's can't not take, to take them, from them. Her. He's not trying to take them, is he? She's trying to destroy him. She's trying to hurt him for hurting her. Oh, God. Okay. I mean, again, it's scenes in musicals and operas that could have been solved with a single conversation. But also, she's in a huge predicament here because she doesn't want to kill this man. Yeah. I mean, he needs she's. To go away, but she's got his kids. No, but like, she's spinning out. Like, she's in a huge predicament, but she's spinning out. And mm-hmm. all she has to say is. Are you gonna take? Are you gonna try and take the kids? And he'll be like, "Fuck no, I just want to." I don't know what the expression is, but it's something to the effect of drink and something about hose. <laughs> Giant question mark. What? <laughs> do you want me to just? Do you want me to just diffuse your tension now and tell you that she doesn't kill them? Yeah, that was fucking helpful, Tina. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> What the fuck? I can actually see your shoulders like raising oh and God. tensing up as I tell you about this scene. So she just can't bring herself to kill her her children. I do not think I could ever. I don't want to say this necessarily, but like, I like to go to dark places. That's too dark for me. Yep. Yeah. I don't. I don't think I could ever participate in the production of a show, and maybe, maybe not even attend as an audience member where there is the killing of children particularly by their parent. No, thank you. Mm-hmm. Except for maybe Turn of the Screw. Yeah, but that's not, it's, it's more spooky and indirect. 
right? I'm talking about like, like Medea, Ufta. And I don't know, like maybe, I think I, I remember being like, ooh, she kills her children somewhere around the time that I was like, I don't know, childless. That shifted dramatically after I grew a human. So I don't know, maybe this is, maybe this is unique to me as I accidentally look over at a picture of my girl. Oh, she's so great. Oh my God. Okay. So we're, we're going to move on from You're this. You're not going to kill him. She's not yeah. going to kill him. Yep. She's not yep. going to kill him. It's going to be fine. She's not going to kill him. It's going to be fine. And actually the kids wake up and she calls for Clotilda and says, all right, you need to bring Adalgisa here. I have a different plan. So Adalgisa enters and she's super concerned because Norma is pale. She is not looking good. And Norma says, all right, you have to swear to do everything I'm about to ask you. Oh, fuck. What is going to happen? Oh, God. And Adalgisa, trusting Norma immensely, oh, no. agrees to do oh, no. everything Norma asks. Oh, God. It's so funny because, like, as I tell you about this, it's so the suspense is so much worse than it actually is in the opera. So this is one that actually kind of works really well telling you as the plot. It's, it's okay. okay. It's okay. Breathe. Breathe. Okay. Norma says, take my children to their father in the Roman camp and leave with them. And I hope he makes a better husband for you than he was a lover to me. And that Adalgisa must take on the role of mother to her children. And that's kind of like Norma's way out of it. Like nobody has to know that I have had these children. Everybody can still think I am their virginal high priestess. Adalgisa can leave. I will release her from her vows. Like this is the best case scenario for everyone. Except for the fact that she still has to figure out a way to either broker peace or destroy the invaders and her baby daddy and now her children. And Adalgisa will be safe. Why? Why would they be safe? Because they're going back to Rome. They're leaving for Rome in the morning. So they won't they won't be part of the invading forces. They'll just be in Rome. Okay. All right. But Adalgisa is aghast at this plan. She tells Norma she's never going to leave Gaul. And she only agreed to this request because she thought it was the best thing for Norma. And they sing this lovely duet where Adalgisa agrees to go to the Roman camp and tell Polione of Norma's grief. And she hopes to persuade him to go back to Norma. Oh, dear. And then she renounces him altogether. And they sing the famous Mirao Norma duet, which is probably the second most famous thing from this opera. It's it's wonderful. It's just it's just like really solid friendship, and it just makes you really happy listening to it. It's Aww. beautiful. Anyway, uteruses before deuteruses. Is that cisnormative? Chicks before dicks. But that's also cisnormative. Well, let's 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 noodle on this at some point. Hmm. Let's noodle on it now. Hmm. Assuming that. All females do not necessarily have uteruses, and all males do not necessarily have dicks. We can't say chicks before dicks, and we can't say uteruses before deuteruses to be inclusive. We need to say it's not going to be as clever, but such is the price of inclusivity sometimes. Um, non romantic love over lust. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> it just doesn't quite have that oh. ring to it. I don't know. Hmm. I've again cisnormative, but I've also heard ovaries before broveries. Yes, <laughs> I think Leslie Nope says that too. Does she? Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, you can't make it work. <laughs> you can't. You just can't make it work because both metaphors are 
based on comparing gender to genitalia. So, oh, well, you know. If somebody has a better version of that, I would love to hear it. Send it to us an email. Please let us know. I would love to. Yeah, please. Let's be clever and figure out a way to still be clever about this without being exclusive. I don't know what it is, but I've also had two glasses of wine. So (laughs) I don't know what I can be expected to come up with at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Well, by the next time this sort of thing comes up in an opera, I'm sure we'll be prepared. Optimistic. I like it. Moving on to the next scene. This scene two of Act Two is literally just the Druid warriors gathering to prepare for an attack on the Romans. And Oroveso enters and he's got news from the gods. Turns out the gods are like, nah, it's not time to strike right now. And all the soldiers are just deflated. (laughs) But they agree to wait if it be the will of the gods. I guess. And scene three opens on Norma, and Clotilda arrives with news that Adalgisa has failed to persuade Polione to return. And although Norma questions whether she should have trusted Adalgisa in the first place, she then learns from Clotilda that Adalgisa is coming back to take her vows at the temple, and that Polione has sworn to abduct her from the temple if she doesn't leave with him. Wait. Let me explain that in a better way. Norma questions a little bit if she should have trusted Adalgisa. Yep. But then Adalgisa is coming back to the temple to take her vows. Like she's trustworthy and she yeah. she's, you know, standing with her people and she's yep. going to, yeah. Anyway, Polione, on the other hand, has said that if Adalgisa doesn't leave with him, he will abduct her from the temple. Oh my God, this guy is such an asshole. And then Norma gets pissed and summons everybody to war. If the high priestess makes the decision, we can go to war. And so trumpets sound, and Oroveso and the druids all rush in, and they're like, what the fuck is going on? And then they hear Norma, like, riling them up to war, and she's saying, like, blood and revenge and all this stuff, and everybody's getting excited to stab the Romans. Stabby, stabby. Can I, I'm sorry, I lost the thread a little bit. When the druids got their text message from the gods, what did it say again? It's not the time yet. Oh, okay. So then this still tracks. Like she's not flying in the face of the gods or something. Yeah, she's like, it's the time now. And they get to listen to her. (laughs) Yep. But in order for Norma to complete the rites to authorize going to war, they require a sacrificial victim. Oh, God. And Oroveso demands to know who will be the sacrificial victim. And at that moment, Clotilda runs in to announce that some Roman has desecrated their temple, but it's okay, they caught the guy. That's convenient. That's convenient. They lead him in, and it's Polione, and he got caught trying to break into the temple to abduct Adalgisa like he said he would. I'm really curious why this opera is called Norma or the Infanticide, when Infanticide is just, like, mulled over like it's just kind of let me let me be clear the play is called norma or the infanticide okay the opera is just called norma well, sorry i yes. don't know the play and if infanticide plays more into it but she doesn't kill her kids in this one so we're just gonna call it norma fair i'm curious now but go on where was i uh oh so polione he gets let in and Norma is urged to use the sacrificial knife to stab him so that they can all go to war And she approaches him with the knife and then realizes that she 
just can't bring herself to stab him because she still loves him. And the crowd's like, uh, hello, like, stab the guy, let's go. And she's like, no, 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 get out of here. I need to question the victim. She's going to let him go. She's going to let him go. Well, she tells him that she can spare his life if he says that he will shun Adalgisa forever and leave them in peace. And then she will release him and she will never see him again. And he refuses. And then Norma gets pissed, vents her anger by telling him that she will kill their children in front of him. And he says, kill me instead, so I'm the only one to die here today. And Norma retorts with, not only will you die, all the Romans will die, and Adalgisa will die for breaking her vows to be with him. And then he starts to plead for Adalgisa's life. So Norma is just going through, she's running the gamut. But she didn't. But Adalgisa didn't, she came back. Yeah, but she also did break her vows. And uh, the penalty for that is death. Well, I gotta say, this is maybe the least cool that Norma has been. Because, mm-hmm. like, she was in cahoots with Adalgisa the whole time. Not really. Not really. Wasn't she? she? I mean, she didn't tell Adalgisa to get with her man and break her vows. And the breaking of your vows She kind of did, though. She was like... I'll I'll try to figure out a way for you to do this. Well, yeah, after the fact. After the fact. Right, so now she's just, like, coming back and gouging her after the fact because she's feeling vindictive. It really has nothing to do with Adalgisa and everything to do with Norma being mad at Polione. Well, yeah, I can see that. And to just, like, make him sweat, right? But, yeah, okay. this is... So maybe she doesn't mean it. Who knows? I don't think she really knows what she wants at this yeah. point. Yeah, I'm not sure we should uh, really uh, put too much uh, trust in the fleeting impulses of the woman who, just a few s- short scenes ago, was seriously contemplating murdering her sleeping children. Mm-hmm. Yikes. Mm-hmm. She's in a hole, and no matter which way she digs, she's not getting yeah, out of this hole. She's spinning the fuck out. So Polione demands that she just kill him. And she instead calls the priests to assemble. And Norma announces that it would be better to sacrifice a priestess who has broken her vows and orders the pyre to be lit. And Oroveso demands to know who is going to be sacrificed. And Polione's like, don't say her name. Don't do it. Don't give her up. And so as everybody leaves to light the pyre, Norma has this little battle with her conscience and wonders if, in fact, she is the guilty one. So then she comes to the conclusion that she is. And she reveals to everyone that she is going to be the sacrificial victim to go to war with the Romans. Oh, my fucking God. Because she is a high priestess who has broken her vows and has become involved with the enemy and has borne him two children. So Norma pleads with her father to spare her children, reminding him that, after all, they are his grandchildren. So Oroveso promises to take care of them, and then she prepares to leap into the flames of the pyre. And suddenly, a re-enamored Polione joins her on the pyre, declaring, Your pyre is mine as well. There, a holier and everlasting love will begin, and the opera ends with them dying together in the flames the end. She got gaslit but she also sort of it's like stockholm syndrome sort of not really like she it's like classic woman in a a, like abused person in an abusive relationship 
where she's like almost there she's almost there and then she's like but wait it's my fault and i deserve to suffer for this reason and but then at the same time when she like throws herself on the pyre then he's back and it's supposed to like yeah i don't know if i see it that way i see her as a woman in a predicament that she put herself in and she very well knows it yeah her private life and her public life shouldn't be separate things because she is the high priestess <sighs> that's right? true because i suppose the fact that he did on her doesn't really enter into the fact that she feels like this is her like the 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 conflict because the idea here is that a sacrifice will allow them to defeat the romans mm -hmm. which was always the overarching goal mm -hmm. and she got distracted and he cheated on her but it doesn't change the fact that she got distracted from the overarching goal of defeat the romans uh it's like yeah it's like disney's pocahontas only with a shit ending kind of like the real pocahontas <laughs> Disney's Pocahontas makes me feel so uncomfortable. Yeah, it's real <laughs> Just, bad. It's yeah. real bad. I want Disney to take it off the app so bad, man. Yes, I want them please. to take it off the app so bad. Because I'm sorry, like, when my four-year-old is on a kick, on a princess kick, and I can't control whether it's on there or not... And the algorithm just kind of feeds it to her. And she's like, Mama, I want to watch that one. And, like, I think I, when I let her watch it, my, my thoughts were... Okay, number one, it's got good music. Stupid reason. Number two, this can be a basis for conversations about colonialism. But she was too young. And so now I'm having to work backwards. I digress. I'm going to digress a little bit further and tell you exactly why Pocahontas makes me cringe. I mean, other than the content. Pocahontas came out when I was a wee child. Yes, indeed. And growing up... I lived out in the country, mm -hmm. which is where most of the Native American people in our community lived. And they were our neighbors. Mm -hmm. And the girls across the street were my best friends. Like their parents are my, uh, they, they still call themselves my adoptive parents, right? Oh. They're Native American. And I go to a lot of birthday parties with lots of Oneida tribe people. And mm -hmm. guess whose mother thought it would be okay to dress her in a Pocahontas shirt? Oh, no. And it makes me cringe the more I think about it in hindsight. Aww. So I apologize so hard for my terrible, terrible ignorance as a child. But that has nothing to do with this. <laughs> so everyone's everyone's ignorant as a child. Nobody's everybody as a child is just like doing what their instincts are in the framework of what they're seeing in their communities and in their home life. And so. Mm -hmm. I don't think, I mean, it's, yeah, it, it probably made some people very uncomfortable and or re-traumatized some people, but it wasn't your fault. And now you know, and you've shared this story publicly now, so yeah. other people can learn from it. And just like cringe at oh, it, because God. I, yeah. every time somebody says the Disney movie Pocahontas, I just, oh. like, I cringe oh. so yeah. hard. Yeah. <sighs> But back to this, yeah. what I was going to say is that Norma is like a caged lion lashing out in every direction. Yeah, that makes sense. I, yeah. You know, mm -hmm. and again, she got herself into this predicament and she tries everything and then she suddenly realizes the best way out of this 
is to remove herself from the equation. Exactly. Exactly. And honestly, of all of the choices, this is probably the most noble one she could have made. It's definitely the most noble one. It's also, of course, rooted in theism and Mm -hmm. the belief that there are big giant things up in the sky that are controlling things and giving permission and making edicts and saying yes sacrifice this thing and we will make this thing happen so it's kind of subject to differences of opinion and belief in that way and so who knows if it's valid i'm going to go ahead and say it's probably not (laughs) (laughs) but can you see why this is a really hard character yeah Especially if you're talking about you, because that, yeah, I mean, like, just from a strictly from an acting standpoint, if you're going to stage this as like a straight play, which I really do, I'm curious about it. Um, yeah, it's all over the place and it's intense. It's not just all over the place, like, oh, I feel hungry and I feel sad and I feel angry and I feel sleepy. It's like, I feel rage. I feel despair. I feel. I don't know if there was joy, but maybe like it's just like the extremes of every single thing she is spinning out and doing that and also sustaining healthy singing of long, long, long lyrical lines sounds a little intimidating. Mm -hmm. I have sympathy for for the I can't do both mentality in this context. Yeah. I would agree. And like you said, it's very intense and it and it goes back and forth between a lot of very tense, intense moments. Mm-hmm. And somehow those long Bellini lines manage to balance it out really well. I just I think this one just like strikes that perfect chord that's kind of rare. And like we get the Casta Diva, which is just this ethereal, beautiful moment. And we've got the Mirao Norma duet, which is just them enjoying they're they they feel secure with each other in their friendship and their devotion to each other does this pass the bestel test (gasps) oh my god i don't think it does why not because they are talking in that duet they are talking about yeah they're devoted to each other but it is them uniting against this man who betrayed them but they're but they're devoted to each other like that yes they're talking about a man but they're talking about they're talking about each other and that devotion like i could see how that would be a gray area mm-hmm. but if we if we count the devotion to each other as a subject matter that can stand alone separate from the fact that they are currently united mm-hmm. against this other person they have a established devotion to each other mm-hmm. so when the bestial test comes into it are there more than one female character? Yes. Do they talk? Yes. To each other? Yes. About something other than a man? I think this opera passes the fucking Bechtel test. Well, I mean, if you put it that way, Norma and Clotilda are often talking about the yeah. children. Oh my God, Tina. Is this the first one? We fucking found one. Holy shit. <laughs> Who knew we would find it in the Belcanto era? <laughs> oh my God. I'm like legitimately excited i'm like right now this is awesome we found a fucking opera that passes the bestial test oh my god well everyone thank you for listening if you have an idea about a better way to say uteruses before deuteruses you can email it to us at operapodhappyhour at gmail.com 
I really hope somebody does. I would fucking love to update that phrase in a way that is both comical and inclusive because it's the, the intent is so good. <laughs> somebody smarter than me will figure it out. Yeah, please. And if you want to know more about our show, you can visit us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or check out our website at operaplothappyhour.com. Yes, you can. And you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. And while you are there, and I cannot stress this enough, please, if you don't have time to review us, just, you know, toss us some stars. Three is fine. Four is better and acceptable. Five is awesome because it helps other people find the show. And it also makes us feel really good about ourselves or, you know, fine about ourselves. But it helps people find the show. And that's what we want. We just want more people to learn about opera alongside me, Amanda, the ignorant surrogate audience member who is constantly tossed around by the winds of Tina's narration skills and the weird fucked librettos of yesteryears. And so next week, <laughs> we're going to talk about Scott Joplin like we were supposed to this week. Yeah, so. and we're real excited about it. We have a super awesome special guest coming, and I'm stoked. And I'm going to leave you with a quote. And that quote is going to be from the inestimable Jesse Norman, who says, I would like to see more African-American singers as part of our opera companies. If you take music and the arts out of public schools, then you're going to lose a lot of people that you might have discovered were talented very early. A fucking mentor. I know. Can't argue with it. <laughs> <laughs>